Well, church, here we are. We have reached the third passage in our series on Colossians. And I must say, this passage seems quite out of place, doesn't it? I mean, here you have Paul, someone who has never met the Colossians, but just finished writing this mammoth, theologically deep, rich message on the supremacy of Christ. How Christ is unrivaled, unmatched, and undefeated. How Jesus is the greatest of all time. But suddenly he switches his perspective and he starts talking about himself. It's a bit like when you're watching a TV show and the series is going really well. I mean, it's captivating, it's gripping, and it keeps you on the edge of your seats. And it has you longing to more, waiting to see what's next. But seemingly out of nowhere, the directors decide to input some weird, boring filler episode that nobody really asked for. If this were a TV show, I can almost envision the church in Colossian, in Colossae screaming at their TV screams, why Paul? Why the filler episode after such a great episode last week? Indeed, this is the question that faces us as we read this right now. The question is, why is Paul writing this? Why is this passage on Paul's own ministry included in his letter to the church in Colossae? Well, I think to find the answer and to understand Paul's intentions, we must start in chapter 2. So please keep your Bibles open and join me as we start in 2 verse 1. Colossians 2 verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Paul is writing this entire section from 124 to 129, the first half of our passage, so that the church in Colossae would know Paul's struggle for them. The word for could be viewed as a because here. I'm saying all of this because I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What struggle is he talking about? Well, as we'll find out later, it's his struggle for the gospel, making known to others the good news. And so naturally, the next question that arises is, okay, so Paul wants us to make known his struggle, but why? Why does Paul want us to know his struggle? Is Paul just bragging about himself? Or is there something deeper, much richer, going on here? Well, read on with me from 2 verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge and knowledge. The purpose of Paul making known his own struggle and his ministry to the church in Colossae was for the sake of their assurance. Full assurance of the understanding of God's mystery, which is Christ. Maybe that doesn't ring deep for you, and so there's some context that we must know, and we must grasp in order to get the amazingness of this passage. And the context is this, that the church in Colossae was under immense pressure. Take a look at 2 verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul indicates here, that people in Colossae were attempting to delude them from Christ, to pull them away from Christ and push them towards other things. I mean, we can see this later on in next week's passage in 2 verse 8 and 2.16. From what we know about Colossae, it was quite a diverse place with a large Greek and Jewish influence. There were a range of philosophies going around, all of which were affecting the Colossians' assurance in Christ. And it's not completely dissimilar from our cultural context today. 
I mean, we live in quite a diverse nation with people from a range of cultures and belief systems who believe a range of different things and participate in a range of different ideologies. But Paul's struggle is speaking to the Colossians, pleading with them to be assured in Christ. And in the same way, his struggle is pleading with us to be assured in Christ amidst all the noise. Pleading with us to put our hope solely in him. Pleading with us that Christ is enough. And Christ is enough for everybody. So the answer to why Paul includes this passage in his letter, it's to assure the church in Colossae in Christ's it's to assure the church in Colossae in Christ through his struggle for them. So now that we've grasped some of the context, we'll begin in 124. Colossians 124, it reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is, the church. Now immediately the question we might have is, what on earth is Paul saying? There is nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ's afflictions were sufficient for the sins of the world. What on earth is he trying to fill up? And we'll get there, I promise. But we're going to start with what the verse makes clear before what perhaps is unclear and seemingly problematic. There are three things in this first verse that we can grasp and that are clear, and that indeed will help us to frame our understanding of what is unclear. So number one, it's that Paul is suffering. I mean, it's right there in 24, now rejoice in my sufferings. We know that from his letter, and at the time of writing, Paul was in prison for the gospel. But I don't believe that this verse is only talking about his immediate struggle of him being in prison, because this passage is about his entire ministry. And so, rather, this is, encompasses a more general struggle that every Christian goes through. It's the same suffering that you get when you're being mocked at work for saying you went to church on a Sunday. Or the suffering that you endure when you say you're a Christian, and immediately people make assumptions about you. Granted, Paul is literally in prison, and so his suffering looks a lot more physical than ours does now, but it's suffering nonetheless. Paul is rejoicing. Or number two, Paul is rejoicing in that suffering. Paul indicates that it is a joy to be a servant of the gospel, and not only to be a servant for the gospel, but to suffer for it. Now, I don't expect that this means Paul was dancing around his prison cell nonstop. Um, rather, it would make more sense that this is an underlying knowledge and feeling of contentment and gladness, knowing the purpose of his suffering. These two things that we've already outlined are already reason enough for the church in Colossae to be assured. The fact that somebody is suffering for their sake, the fact that somebody is rejoicing in that suffering, shows them that this is a significant message they are trying to communicate. Can you imagine if someone was suffering to tell you a message, and then they said they were rejoicing in that suffering? Oh, how powerful and how great the message must be that they are enduring suffering and rejoicing in it. In other words, Christ is shown to be significant through people willing to suffer for the gospel with joy. I'll say it again, Christ is shown to be significant through people willing to suffer for the gospel with joy. Church, are we that same sort of witness for others? 
Do people see your endurance, suffering for the gospel in your workplaces, your schools, and your universities? And do they see you suffer for it with joy? That it may assure them of the power and the importance of this message, which is Christ. Number three, he rejoices because of who he's suffering for. Paul is able to rejoice because he's suffering for Christ's body, the church. There are a few reasons given throughout the Bible on why we should rejoice in our suffering, but the reason for Paul's rejoicing in this letter is that it's who he's suffering for that causes him to rejoice. Christ's body, which is the church. It's not just some symbolism. This is a spiritual reality. Remember in Acts 9 when Jesus appeared to Paul and told him, why do you persecute me? Notice how personal it is. He didn't say, why do you persecute the apostles or why do you persecute X, Y, and Z believers? He said, why do you persecute me? Though Paul was persecuting the church, he was indeed persecuting Christ because we are his body. In a real sense, it is Jesus' own body whom we struggle for for his church, and hence we rejoice. When times get tough as a church, and believe me, they will get tough, the novelty of being a new church will wear off, a stagnation or decline in church attendance may occur, the early morning setups may begin to get to us, conflicts may arise between brothers and sisters. When all of this happens, take heart, because the suffering we endure we endure for the sake of Christ's body. So rejoice, remembering who we are suffering for. This brings us to the hard part of this verse, um, and indeed what most, if not all, commentators have considered to be the hardest verse in all of Colossians. And the question arises, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I don't want to spend too much time on this, because it's there as a supporting point to aid the three things Paul is trying to communicate. His suffering... He's rejoicing in the suffering because of who he's suffering for. This is not the point of the verse. Rather, it's a supporting point. And so, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And what is Paul attempting to fill up? A couple of things we can get out of the way immediately. No, Paul is not saying that anything is lacking in Christ's sufferings to pay for the sins of the world. That sin was paid for on the cross. It was paid in full. And Paul in no way is saying that he is contributing to the atonement or the reconciliation with us to God that Christ providing through his suffering and death. So what is it? Well, what Paul is saying here is that though Christ has reconciled all things to himself through his death, things are not yet reconciled and at peace. I mean, take a look at our world. Not everyone who God has chosen to be his own people is saved. And we are not yet presented blameless before him. We are not yet fully mature in Christ. So Christ's afflictions are not lacking in the sense of them being not enough. But rather, they have not yet had their full effect. And so what is lacking and being needed to fill up are the necessary tribulations and suffering. Necessary to share the gospel with unbelievers and edify the existing church. If this is something you're curious about, feel free to approach me um, after the service. Again, there's lots of commentaries and a lot of different opinions on this. Um, but I tried to grasp the main point. Again, it's not the point of the verse, but it's adding to the point, which is how Paul rejoices in his suffering because of who he's suffering for. Christ's body, the church. And this brings them assurance 
because it is a show of suffering for the gospel with joy. And this highlights the significance and the sole need people have for Jesus. But there is one more reason why the church in Colossae should be assured. Perhaps one far greater um, and far more immediate and relevant to their struggle. Notice how Paul tells the Colossians who he is suffering for twice. At the start of the the verse, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And at the end of the verse, it says, For the sake of his body that is the church. Paul is drawing an equivalence between these two things. He is saying, you, I'm suffering for you, Colossians, and I am suffering for the sake of the church. You two are one and the same. Imagine how powerful a message this is for people who are struggling in their assurance in Christ. Maybe you don't fully grasp it, and that's okay. I'm going to use an illustration. So imagine for a second that you're a church, that you are part of the church in Colossae. And you are under pressure, particularly of a Jewish influence, of people trying to disqualify you from being one of God's own people. They say that you need to eat a certain way, drink a certain way, that you must observe a certain festival, a new moon or a Sabbath. Your entire cultural context is this. People screaming at you that you need more than just Christ. And so you're doing everything. You're eating and drinking the right things, observing the right festival, a new moon, a Sabbath, and it's exhausting. You're working so hard to try and be one of God's own people, but it's not enough. You are tired. You are weary. Now imagine that Paul, some guy who you know vaguely about, you know that he's an apostle, you know the message that he's sharing, but you don't know him personally like the other churches do. He comes along and tells you, you're already in Christ. And you are already a part of his body. There is nothing more for you to do. You'd do a double take, wouldn't you? You'd have to get him to repeat it. Because this whole time you're being told by your culture that there is more that you had to do and that you had to work hard to become one of God's own people. You would be insane if you didn't get him to elaborate further. But can you already feel the burden start to lift off your shoulders? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you have to do. You're already one of God's own people. And so you'd be insane if you didn't get to him to explain further. And in explain, Paul does, going on to say in 125, read with me, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So here we see that Paul has become a minister of the church, not by his own choosing, by God's choosing. And that a task was given to Paul from God. He was tasked with making the word of God fully known. So what does it mean that he wants to make the word of God fully known? Well, read on with me in 126 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. Pause. So there's a secret, and the secret has been kept a secret. Indeed, this is probably the greatest secret ever hidden from mankind. It was a secret that endured for the entirety of the Old Testament, for ages and generations. And people were given glimpses, but they never got the full picture. Read on in verse 26, but now revealed to his saints. And so only now is the secret out. Now, of course, we know what the secret is because we read the passage not long ago, but we're going to keep pretending like we're hearing this for the first time. 
So there's this secret which was hidden and is now revealed. So what's the secret? Continue in verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He hasn't told us what the secret is yet. But we know that it's something great, something rich and something glorious. That it's a secret to do with you and I, Gentiles. What richness and glory is among us? Don't you get an itch to know what it is? Continuing on, Paul reveals the secret as this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the big secret that was hidden for ages and generations. This is the mystery. This is really good news. See, there are two categories for the, that the Bible has for people. Jews who were Israel... God's chosen people, we see their story throughout the Old Testament, and Gentiles, which is everybody else. Just by show of hands, who here is Jewish? I see no hands. Now raise your hands nice and high if you're a Gentile. I should see every single hand raise up right now. Do you see why this is such good news? We are Gentiles. The people in Clyde and Clyde North are Gentiles, and Christ is now able to live in us. Consider just for a moment Ephesians 2, 12 to 14, which was addressed to the Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In Christ, we have been brought near by his blood. We can now be a part of Christ's body, as was indicated in verse 24, when Paul said, I'm suffering for your sake and for the sake of Christ's body, because you're one and the same. This means that we can be Christians and what does it mean that Christ is in us, the hope of our glory? Well, it means that him residing in us is the only hope we'll ever have of ever being glorified and presented blameless before God. This is assurance. Christ has already made a way. There is nothing you can say nor do that can save yourself and make yourself right with God. Paul is trying to communicate, be fully assured in Christ. He's already revealed himself fully to the Colossians. And we being Gentiles also, he's already revealed himself fully to us. There is nothing you can say nor do. Stop striving. He's made himself known among us who previously we could not know. But now if you put your hope and your trust in him alone, he is with you. He is in you. So the question remains, have you put your hope and trust in Him. Now we've heard Paul frequently say to walk in Christ, or that we are in Christ, but not many times have we heard him use the reverse phrasing, Christ in you. These paint two very different pictures, and I do believe that Paul has been intentional in his phrasing. When the Bible talks about us being in Christ, 
it appears to be tied to something about unity. You can see Galatians 3, 1 Peter 5, or Ephesians 2. Or us being in Christ indicates there's a change in behavior we should have because we've been forgiven and we are now in Christ. We are no longer in this world. See Romans 8, Colossians 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. But when the Bible talks about Christ being in us, which it does much more rarely, on much rarer of an occasion, but it does in this passage, it seems to be about a work that Christ is doing inside of us. See Romans 8, Galatians 2, Ephesians 3, or the passage here in front of us. So what is the work that Christ is doing inside of us in this passage? Well, because Paul is saying that Christ in us is the hope of our glory, it appears to be that the work Christ is doing inside of us is making us blameless before him. Because Christ is in us, we are made blameless before God, which is why he is the hope of our glory. But also there appears to be another reason, another thing that Christ is doing inside of us. In fact, it's impossible for this thing to occur without Christ inside of us. And in fact, Paul and his ministry are doing something that is impossible without Christ inside of them. Because God has made a way through Christ for everyone, Jew and Gentile, to come to him, Paul is called to tell people about this good news and call people to maturity in accordance with what Christ has done for them. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you notice the repetition of the word everyone? It's important because everyone can now come to Christ and there is no distinction between Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, nor free. Paul proclaims Christ to everyone because everyone can come to him. Jesus Christ the only hope of anyone's glory. Jesus Christ, the only hope of the glory of the people of Clyde and Clyde North. Jesus Christ, the only hope of the people in our workplaces. Jesus Christ, the only hope of the people in our schools and universities. Christ, the only hope of people in our government. Christ, the only hope for Australians. Christ, the only hope of our world. Christ, our only hope. Everyone needs Jesus. And everyone can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, or what you've done. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him in Christ. And so there's a caveat, isn't there? Your soul is in danger if you don't put your trust solely in Christ. If you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, if you don't put your trust, hope, and security in him, then your hope is not being in being glorified with him. Your hope, and I hope you catch the irony, is eternal damnation and eternal punishment. And so the stakes are high. And so if you believe, our job is right here. It's our mission statement. It's to proclaim him, to warn and to teach unbelievers of the danger they're in if they don't turn to Christ and to edify the existing church and present people mature in Christ. This is Paul's struggle that he mentioned in verse 24. This is the hard work that he is rejoicing in. This is him filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
this is our mission statement. But there's a massive, massive asterisk. And the asterisk is this, that you are incapable of doing this. We can't do this. But you just said that we need to proclaim him, and I know what I said. And I'm also saying that you can't do it. You can't work hard enough at this. You can't toil for this in your own strength. It's impossible. But you can do this with Christ in you. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul doesn't say, for this I toil, using up all of my strength, mustering up all of my courage, trying as hard as I can in order to claim him. It's impossible. You can't do this in your own strength, and neither can Paul or his ministry. This is what I mean when I said earlier that there appears to be another work that Christ is doing inside of us in this passage. And indeed, this is what Paul and his ministry is doing, something impossible without Christ in them. Church, we can't do any of this in our own strength. We need Christ in us. We need his strength to powerfully work within each of us. And we need to be crying out to God day in and day out, night and day, asking him to sustain us. Because it's impossible to sustain ourselves in this mission. We need Christ. This isn't a job we can do in our own strength. And so God, can you please sustain us through Christ? We toil and struggle to proclaim Christ, asking Him to give us strength and energy to endure, because He is in us. And we rejoice in that suffering, because we remember who we are suffering for. We're suffering for Christ. Not in our own strength, but in Christ's strength. I'm going to pray, and while I pray, the band's going to come up. So please, close your eyes and bow your heads. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example for ministry that you have set out before us. God, we just ask that you'll fill us with your spirit. That Christ will dwell richly within us. That we'll be aware that we can't do any of what we're trying to do with our own strength. Lord God, give us wisdom, give us peace, give us endurance in order to proclaim your message, to warn and teach people and to present people mature in Christ. May we walk out of this building not unchanged, but changed. May this message go from our heads to our hearts to our feet as we go out to proclaim Christ in your strength. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. Hear us cry out to you as we ask for your sustaining power. As we ask for your endurance, as we ask for your support. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.